This week on Myths and Legends, it's the first part of the Aeneid. What happens when Aeneas flees Troy to go found an empire? And we'll learn the meaning of your child's head spontaneously catching fire, and how, if you try to dig and the ground bleeds and yells at you, you're probably gardening wrong. The creature is Batman, if Batman was super into decapitation. This is Myths and Legends, episode 211, Troy Story. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories, you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. This week, we're back in Greek and Roman mythology for the Aeneid. Now, it's not technically mythology. The Aeneid was basically created wholesale by the poet Virgil, commissioned by Octavian, the first Roman emperor. And it's kind of propaganda? It came out about the time of the fall of the Roman Republic and the rise of the empire, and gives Rome a great mythic past, asserts Roman virtues and superiority, and is over the top trying to legitimize the Julio-Claudian dynasty, aka the family of the then-current ruler of Rome. Essentially, Virgil took some disparate facts and legends about Aeneas, a Trojan, and wove a new tale. But we're not in Rome yet, and we're not in Italy either. Today, we begin our story where the Aeneid starts. It starts a few years after Troy, and Aeneas and his ships have been taken in by the beautiful ruler of Carthage, Queen Dido herself. At this moment, Aeneas is just sitting down to dinner with their host, and he's eager to tell everyone all about the first stage of his wanderings. All right, so where do you all want me to start? I'm thinking maybe we skip the fall of Troy? Like, it's, uh, of course, dramatic and everything, but how many times do you really need to hear about the fall of Troy, am I right? It fell. It's over. No one said a word as the air grew stale. Then some shouts of outrage started, and Aeneas tugged at the collar of his shirt. <laughs> Tough crowd. No matter. I'm uh, hearing quite a lot of boos. Or maybe you're saying, Aeneus. Look, I get it. Ancient world, we're all about the fall of Troy. But come on, there's plenty of time in the next thousand years to tell the same story over and over and... Ah! Just in time, Aeneas ducked as an arrow flew past his right ear. What? Was that an arrow? He burst. Dido, your majesty, can we do something about that? I don't want your hospitality to send me to the hospital... Really? Nothing? You're going to make me work for this one. Fine. We'll go back to Troy, where it all ended. Or rather, where it all began. Aeneas was having a great night. And then he wasn't. It started with a party as many stories did. The war was over, and the Greeks were gone. They'd even left a sweet horse that sometimes talked with a dare that the Trojans couldn't possibly get it in the city and be blessed forever. Well, guess what? The Trojans simply had to take the door off the hinges and turn it sideways a little, but they got it in, no problem. Take that, Greeks. It was such a tasteful addition to the city that they rolled it on logs right to the center of the city, popped open the good wine, 
and unwound after a decade of siege. Aeneas partook, but came back early, in that he didn't pass out in the square like most of his fellow Trojans, and he passed out in his bed instead. That's where things started to take a bit of a turn. Now, very rarely is it a good sign when your dead, mangled cousin comes and occupies your dreams, urging you to flee the country because everything is now on fire. Spectre Hector, Trojan MVP and Achilles' stress ball, made his point clear. Grab your gods, grab your family, grab your servants, and flee, because the Greeks were already inside the walls. The giant horse, the one that clanged like it was full of guys with armor and weapons, get this, was full of guys with armor and weapons. Like, who could have called that? Well, except Cassandra. And also the guy who said as much, but Poseidon had him and his kids immediately eaten by serpents. I can see you're getting worked up, Hector continued, before coughing up part of his tongue. But there's no saving Troy at this point. Go. Be the remnant. Build a great city and raise walls dedicated to Troy and our gods. Because that worked so well the first time. Aeneas woke with a start. There was shouting far off. Screaming, actually. His dream was right. Troy was falling. Aeneas had his mission. He was to flee the city as quickly as possible. So, of course, he gathered a posse first to do exactly not that, and began fighting the Greeks in the streets. Soon, he was knee-deep in the battle against the street Greeks. It took the group climbing on top of a roof to actually abandon their last stand. Looking out across everything they knew and everyone they loved, there was no denying it anymore. It was all burning. Death fell everywhere. By now, only the guards at the gate put up any sort of resistance but they, too, were drowning in a sea of spears. Everyone else broke and ran, but the same walls that had protected them for a lifetime had now become their prison. Wow, Aeneas said. All right, new plan, guys. We follow the original plan and get out of here. Uh, guys? Turns out that, rather than die in an ancient world city getting sacked, Aeneas's buds had taken the quick way down and had all jumped off the roof. Aeneas carefully picked his way down and ran for home. But since, you know, the whole city was overrun with Greek soldiers killing everyone, the road was closed. So Aeneas took a quick narrative digression to take in the gravity of the situation once more. On the altar of Zeus, Priam, the king of Troy, was dying. Women, like Andromache and Cassandra, struggled in vain against their captors, taken as spoils by the invaders. All around Aeneas, people had fallen. When at last Aeneas burst through his front door, he was met with another issue. Dad was staying, come on. Now, we talked about Anchises a long time ago, but when Zeus got mad that his, sometimes daughter, didn't want to be with him, yeah, he cursed Aphrodite to fall in love with a human man, that being a curse for her, despite him falling in love with humans all day, every day. Well, the very much not-cursed focus of her love was Anchises, a cousin of Priam. Aphrodite had one rule. Keep your mouth shut. She wasn't ashamed of him. She just didn't want to be seen with him or have him talk about her at all. You know, normal relationship stuff. Well, Anchises would do anything for love, but he won't do that. Ten minutes later, he was relaxing by the fire, and it just happened to come up that he had a thing going on with the goddess of beauty. Huh, 
Weird. Is that a storm? It wasn't, of course. It was, however, Zeus making good on Aphrodite's threats. A lightning bolt came down on Anchises' foot, leaving him with a permanent limp. When Aeneas burst into the house, there sat Anchises in his Trojan living room, in his favorite chair, a spear across his lap. He had already lived through one sacking of Troy, and he was too old to do this again. He would stay right here and fight the last man. He would go down with the ship. He wouldn't put his hands up and surrender, and there would be no white flag above his door. And he paused his story and looked at Queen Dido. Huh? Anything? No? Still worth it. Back to Troy. Aeneas pleaded with his father. No, really, he said. The gods told him to leave. Specter Hector told him to leave. Anchises remained seated. If the gods intended for him to live, they would have made a palace for him here. He would die with a weapon in his hands. He had merely been lingering out his life for years here. Despised by the gods, a dead weight to man, nothing could bring back his will to live. Nothing, that is, except for his grandson's head spontaneously catching fire. It was a tongue of fire that appeared over Aeneas' son, Iulus's head. Despite Aeneas being himself the son of a goddess, he responded exactly like I would if our child's head burst into flames. Panic and splashing. To the gods' limited credit, the fire wasn't the burning type, but rather the symbolic type. And the boy wasn't harmed, I mean, by the flames. His father, however, was actively trying to smother the fake fire on his head by dunking him in any nearby water he could find. Despite the chaos, the whole situation spoke to Anchises. He boarded the plane and made the mental trip, from grandson's head bursting into flames to, I should leave a city bursting into flames. Even if getting there required more than a few logical layovers. Still, he had to be sure. Should he just stay and die, or leave and not die? Ah, if only Zeus could confirm. At that moment, a lightning bolt struck the tree outside on a clear night. And Kaisi sat up, tall. Let's get out of here. Son, it's piggyback ride time. And since Anchises walked with a permanent limp, Aeneas shared his fear that his father wouldn't be able to keep up with the party. So, with his son holding one of his hands, household gods in a sack in the other, and dad on his back, Aeneas nodded to his wife, asking her to stay close, and took a deep breath as they looked out on the dancing flames amid the darkness. Swords clashed, the din punctuated by screams. He told his servants of the place where they would meet, should they become separated. With a deep breath, Aeneas took his first step. God's willing, they would see the end of this night. If they were lucky, they might just make it through. Hey, we made it, Aeneas announced setting his father down with the waiting servants and crew. Wasn't even that hard either. A lot of fighting, but we really just ran through some fiery corridors, climbed out through the catacombs, and here we are. Nice little remnant too. What do you think, honey? Aeneas said, turning to the empty spot behind him, where he expected to see his wife, Cressa. Panic welled in the pit of his stomach as Aeneas realized for the first time that she had been separated from the group. She hadn't made it out. 
Throwing down the bag of the household gods, Aeneas called out to his father and servants, Would they please watch his son and all get a safe distance from the city? He was going back. He had to go back for Carissa. Amid shouts of protest, no one was able to stop Aeneas as he wedged back between the rocks to the catacombs to find his wife. The city was quiet. The marauders had moved further in, leaving broken bodies and burning homes in their wake. It wasn't long before Aeneas found Cruessa. Or rather, she found him. He turned to see a ghost behind him. A sob caught in his throat. Cruessa was... was dead? Sup, Cruessa said, nodding. Oh, me? Yeah, I'm dead. Bummer, isn't it? But be assured it's the will of the gods, or something. And he has reached to take her hand in his, but he moved right through her. Tears welled, and he breathed in sharply. He would never forget her. Truly, he would never love again. No, yeah, you, you will. I kind of start to wonder if my life was just a way for you to have a fully Trojan son with a name suspiciously close to Julius to find your city and thus lend credence to a budding autocracy about a thousand years in the future. Fun to be killed off off camera at the start of our big adventure so you can go on to have guilt-free sexy road romances. But no, 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 you go do your thing. I'll be here. Dead. Aeneas didn't know what to say. We're told that he was so sad, and Crusoe was very cool with her untimely death, but completely unrelated to said future sexy road romances. But of course, the poem pretty much never mentions her name again, so take that as you will. exiled remnant of Troy then proceeded to build 20 ships to transport all the Trojans to this fabled future city that they would found together. As an aside, I don't know how they managed any of that. The story certainly doesn't go into any detail, you know, regarding the injured people with no food, no shelter, no tools, no money, no lumber, all building 20 ships from scratch with the raging Greeks right next door, but somehow they did. On the day they sailed out, Everyone on board looked back at the plains that had once held Troy. They were now deserted. Those who had lived there so recently were either killed, taken, or scattered. The Greeks were on their way home, and the aftermath was silent. The unbreakable city had been reduced to a mere husk of its former glory. But Aeneas wasn't looking to the past. His eyes were set on the future, to an empire promised to him that would span the world and last forever. But what's a forced cruise without a couple of excursions? Their first pit stop was on an island that, when Aeneas dug into the ground, cried out and bled. That being peculiar, Aeneas asked the ground why it was bleeding and crying, and of course, it answered. It was one of their own, a fellow Trojan who, on a diplomatic mission to secure an ally, had been betrayed by the king of Thrace, murdered, and left here unburied. No one back at Troy really noticed because they were all trying not to be slaughtered in their beds, but Aeneas and co. did the right thing and buried the guy before continuing on. Next up, Delos, the birthplace of the gods Apollo and Artemis, where the king there 
told them that the place they were looking for was the island of Crete. It was largely left abandoned after its former glory days, where the leadership saw such improvements as indoor plumbing and feeding people to monstrous half-bull stepchildren. King Midas had disappeared. His son fumbled the whole thing and was killed, and now was left to a bunch of warring groups. So, Crete it was. The whistle blew, everyone boarded once again, and off they set for Crete. Once there, they staked out a kingdom and started building walls and houses. Things were good. Finally. For a year, Aeneas helped the remnants settle and establish themselves. But then the plague started. Anchises, Aeneas's father, quickly divined the correct interpretation. Apollo was mad at them for not following his will and for stopping to establish their empire on Crete, despite everyone trying their best to figure out what the gods wanted. If you're wondering why he didn't just show up in a dream or something, well, he did, a few days later. But the plague came first, because Apollo was a diva, and a quick dream message course correction apparently wasn't flashy enough for him. On that fateful night, Aeneas woke with a start. Hesperia. He was supposed to go to Hesperia. Now, in Greek myth, Hesperia was the western lands, far off and mysterious. Aeneas thought back to a time when he had heard that before, from his cousin, Cassandra, the woman that was cursed to be a prophet that no one would believe. He had been at a chariot dealership, stroking his beard and mulling over his options. All-wheel drive? I mean, definitely. You want all the wheels to move. Gonna go with two horsepower, too. Should he get the third row seating, though? Don't worry about it, Cassandra had said. You won't need it here. You're only going to have one kid before the city burns when the Greeks invade via oversized horse car and you flee to establish an empire in Hesperia. Aeneas had stared blankly at his cousin. <laughs> Cassandra and her prophecies, what could they mean? Yeah, he'll go with the third row seating. Aeneas shook off the memory, bringing himself back to the present, to Crete. Ugh, if only Cassandra hadn't been so cryptic. They might have all been saved. All right, then. To the west they would go. We'll continue with Aeneas on his journey, but that will be right after this. In no time, the crew found a mostly deserted stretch of beach, docked, and began gathering wood along the beach for their camp. That's when Aeneas heard weeping. He waved over his men, and together they snuck into the clearing where they stumbled upon the source, and they stopped dead. Andromache? Aeneas stammered. The woman, former wife of Hector, prince of Troy, huddled next to a small mound crowned with rocks, weeping. When she saw Aeneas, flanked by a dozen Trojan soldiers in Greece, she froze. But how? Aeneas embraced his cousin's wife, studying her. The years... The years since Troy had been difficult. She had clearly seen some things and appeared stronger than she'd ever been. Then, he remembered something. Neoptolemus. If you don't remember, Neoptolemus was Achilles' pretty insanely brutal son. Aeneas had been in hiding the day the boy murdered the king of Troy on the steps of his palace. But he had heard rumors. 
and from the look of pain in Andromache's eyes, the rumors were true. And they were. As we know, Neoptolemus claimed Andromache, Hector's wife, as his concubine, which is a euphemism for a certain type of enslavement we will not go into. The issue was that she had a son with Hector, and Neoptolemus knew better than to raise the son of his vanquished enemy in his own house. That was a nice way to wake up dead. So, of course, he had pulled the child from the mother's arms and had thrown him from the walls of Troy before taking Andromache back to his ship so they could get better acquainted. The men were forming a circle around Aeneas and Andromache. Neoptolemus was almost as dangerous as his father, but Andromache told them all to relax. It was over. He was dead. All eyes focused on Andromache. What? Andromache nodded. Yeah, turns out being a complete monster comes back to haunt you. Sometimes, she said. Not to get into the weeds, but Neoptolemus, Achilles' son, wanted to marry Hermione, the daughter of Helen and Menelaus. But she was already betrothed to Agamemnon's son, Orestes, who's getting his own episode soon. But on account of doing Menelaus a solid by being a straight-up murder machine at Troy, Neoptolemus had banked up a favor. And so he decided to cash out. Menelaus went back on his word to Orestes and betrothed his daughter to Neoptolemus, a fact that Orestes wasn't exactly thrilled about. He raised a good point, insisting that Hermione was meant for him. And then he drove that point home with the tip of his spear through Neoptolemus's back. Andromache had gone on to marry his Trojan servant, and they had gone on to build basically a Troy theme park here in Greece. Aeneas gripped his forehead. Uh, I mean, all that political stuff was kind of hard to follow, but hey, awesome, great. Always good to hear that the enemy of your people is dead, but wait, hold on. What was that about a Troy theme park? Of course, that's a little bit reductive, but it's kind of what they did. Helenus, another child of Priam, had been enslaved alongside many fellow Trojans. But when Neoptolemus went and got himself murdered, Helenus seized the opportunity, staged a coup, and the Trojans took control of the city. It had been a few years, and since the Greek world was too busy imploding, no one really challenged them. They rebuilt a smaller version of Troy's walls, designated a creek to be a stand-in for the mighty river that flowed by their old city, named the front gate the same as the one in Troy, and made the same food. It wasn't home, but it was close enough for the refugees. Also, not being enslaved was nice. At first, all the newcomers looked around their surroundings with wide eyes, like babes in Troyland. But the longer they spent there, the more they felt like it was a poor copy, a sad facsimile that, by its very existence, made them mourn the past instead of live for the future. Aeneas could see that it was enough for the weary exiles, who had lived under the yoke of a monster. But he wanted more. He wanted to fulfill the promise of the gods, and have an empire that eclipsed even Troy. Luckily, Helenus, son of Priam and king of Troyland, was a prophet. Sybar, it's always surprising just how many prophets were on the Trojan side, and yet they still lost. Anyway, he claimed he could see Aeneas' future. And what did he see? Aeneas would found his city, his empire, on the western coast of Italia. Unfortunately, it would be a long and winding path getting there. One that would include a trip to the underworld, a stop off on an island full of pig people, and cyclopes. In other news, Aeneas was to go on until he saw a sow with 30 snow-white pigs at her side. That was where he was to stop. His long and winding trip would begin by going around Sicily, 
which is a large island that sits on the tip of the Italian boot. You're probably going to ask me, Helenus began, and waited. Why don't we just go straight there? If mainland Italia doesn't connect to Sicily, Aeneas asked. Helenus nodded. There it was. Well, the main reason was the giant whirlpool there. The other? Belly button wolves. Belly button wolves, Aeneas repeated. Belly button wolves, Helenus nodded. There was a woman, thing, that lived in the cliffs there. She went by the name Scylla, and she had the upper body of a beautiful woman, which she used to lure and abduct sailors. Below the waist, she was, quote, writhing horror, with a belly button that spawns wolves with dolphins' tails. My advice? Don't try to be a tough guy and brave the strait. Just go around. It takes a while, but you know it would take even longer? Being dead, they both said in unison. Aeneas agreed and gathered his sailors. It was time for them to go. It took a while to find Iolus. He was with Andromache, and Aeneas could barely tear the boy away from her. Her son, Astyanax, would have been about Iolus's age. It never got any easier, she explained. Aeneas put his hand on her shoulder, telling her to live on in her blessings. The past was painful, but her destiny had been won. She had earned her rest at last. With that, Aeneas said goodbye to his former princess cousin and the rest of Troyland. He would never see them again. Seriously, Aeneas said, as his ship started to bank toward the widening gyre. How was this happening? He'd said, avoid the whirlpool Charybdis. Well, actually, one of his crewmen chimed in, Charybdis is the name of the monster that causes the whirlpool and not the whirlpool itself. It's a common misconception, like refrain of Frankenstein's monstrous Frankenstein, and I'm seeing that this isn't really the time for this, and I'll get back to my oar. The crew strained against the whirlpool for hours, and eventually, they broke free. Weary, they brought their boats to rest on an island. Before they could even disembark, however, a man dressed in rags, hooked with thorns, bolted from the forest. His beard was one giant tangle, and his appearance half-starved and filthy. And he was Greek. Instantly, he found himself facing a ship full of spear points. He threw up his hands, begging hysterically to board the boat, or be killed, please. It really didn't matter to him at this point, so long as he didn't die by them. Them, Aeneas asked. And it was then that they felt the ground shudder. This happened on one of our last Greek episodes, but this man's name was Eichmanides, and he was a bit uh, of a perfectionist. He was in the cave with Odysseus when they were escaping from Polyphemus, and he tied himself under a sheep, but, mm, but he was shifting under that giant sheep, trying to position the ropes just right. He loosened them and dropped down, but seconds after, the giant, Polyphemus, was up and rolling the stone away from the mouth of the cave. The sheep instinctively followed, and Ichmanides was left in the cave, alone. It was a long day, sitting there in the dark, but when the door opened that evening, to the grumbling Cyclops, Ichmanides slipped out immediately, the blinded Cyclops thinking that everyone got away, so there was no reason to wait by the door and feel for somebody escaping. 
by the time Igmanides ran to the ship, his crew was gone. They had left him. By now, it had been months, he didn't know. He'd lost track of time. He managed to stay hidden most of the time, but he didn't dare enter the cave of another Cyclops and risk getting trapped again. The images of his comrades being dashed against the rocks and torn limb from limb appeared whenever he closed his eyes. Really, he just wanted it to be over. Whether it was by human death or rescue, it didn't matter anymore. Yes, he had been among the men who sacked Troy, who had killed their countrymen. But like them, he hadn't wanted to be in the war in the first place. He'd been pressed into service like everyone else. It was a squabble of kings that the rest of them ended up paying for. Still, if they wanted to kill him, he accepted that. After a moment, Aeneas motioned to his men to lower their spears. The war was over. They weren't enemies anymore. And this man had paid for his crimes many times over. Aeneas climbed down and clasped the man's hand. Welcome aboard. But first, he wanted to get a look at a cyclops. Ichmanides staggered back. Are you serious right now? Aeneas nodded marching past Ichmanides to part the leaves at the edge of the beach. Oh yeah, Polyphemus? This felt like a big event, so much so that, say, a writer a thousand-ish years later might toss in this little crossover episode as a bit of fan service. Nope, 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 Aeneas and his men whispered as they sprinted back to the ship moments later. They had seen Polyphemus washing out his bloody eye socket and decided that they were going to have precisely none of that. It said that they scrambled aboard their ships and cut the lines to their anchors. They were so ready to get out of there. With unfurled sails, it was all hands on deck, rowing as hard as they could. All the noise of their hasty exit triggered Polyphemus and his cyclops ears perked up. Moments before he came thundering on the scene, but he was too late. Again. The ships were already too far out, and the shore empty. The men aboard the ship, giving a wide berth to Sicily, saw more and more Cyclopes rush to the edge of the shore. At the sound of Polyphemus's wailing, the Brotherhood of Etna, as they were called, watched as the ships sailed as far away from Sicily as possible. Wow, Aeneas said, after hearing from Achmenides of the first few stops of Odysseus's long and arduous journey home from the Trojan War. There had to be a more succinct name for that. But he nodded. Nice. His home might have been burned and so many of his loved ones killed, but he took heart in knowing that Odysseus was being constantly thwarted and traumatized on a daily basis. Also, all things considered, Aeneas was doing pretty well. They lost a few people in the plague back on Crete, but no ships so far. Huh, he said, looking out onto the sea. Probably nothing, but did that giant storm cloud coming for them look like it had a face? It did. You see, Aeneas was pretty much flying under the anachronistic godly radar at this point. They had other stuff going on, like sticking it to Odysseus constantly. Still, with Aeneas at Sicily, he was within spitting distance of Italia and establishing his empire. And one goddess in particular, 
Hera was getting worried. Long story, but in modern day Tunisia, there was a city named Carthage. Hera favored that city, and it was there that she stored her armor and her chariot. It was her city, and one day it would rule all the nations of the earth. And they might have gotten away with it too, if it wasn't for that pesky Rome. Carthage was a very powerful city during the time of the Roman Republic, and it was also Rome's biggest enemy. They fought a few very costly wars, the Punic Wars, one of which had the Carthaginian general Hannibal famously riding elephants over the Alps to invade Italy. But eventually, the Roman Republic was victorious, and, according to legend, destroyed Carthage so thoroughly that they salt the earth, so nothing would ever grow there again. That probably didn't actually happen though, just FYI. Destroying Carthage really paved the way for Rome to become the preeminent power in the region, and every Roman reading or hearing this poem would understand the cultural significance of Carthage appearing at this point, so I thought that bit of history was necessary. The thing is, when people are slated to destroy your favorite city, it's probably not a good idea to pay off the Lord of the Winds with a good-looking nymph, as Hera did, so that the future Romans would blow off course when they're like less than 100 miles from your city. And so it was that Poseidon got a notification that the winds were running without his approval. So we swam up and put the kibosh on that, and instantly the sky cleared. A soaked and weary Aeneas looked out to see only seven ships had survived, out of his original 20. Worried, he made for the first bit of land he found. And then, he heard a cry from behind him. It was his father. We don't know exactly how Anchises died, but somewhere after the ships were hit by the storm, and before they landed in northern Africa, the father of Aeneas, and consort of Aphrodite, breathed his last. Aeneas was beside himself with grief. Still, he had a people to look out for. And hungry, Aeneas ventured out on a hunt, and chanced upon a beautiful young huntress, who, thankfully, he did not try to pick up, because she was secretly his mom, Aphrodite, in disguise. She shared that there was a city down the way a bit. It was called Carthage, and it was ruled by Queen Dido. This beautiful young huntress knew a surprising amount about the royal family's history, and we'll go into that next time we tell a story from the Aeneid, but assured Aeneas that, yes, he should just walk right into the city. He would no doubt find them all very welcoming. They're gonna be welcoming to a bunch of armed men just waltzing into their city? Aeneas asked, turning at the sound of some of his men who'd come looking for him. When he turned back, the huntress was gone. Huh, weird. This time, Aeneas followed instructions. He gathered the guys together and set out for the city rising on the horizon. There, Aeneas paused. Next to a shrine of Hera was, hey, did that look familiar to anyone? The men looked at the painted mural of a giant horse being pushed into a burning city. Yeah, a little, someone said from the back. As they approached the city, guards met them out front. Aeneas approached and waved, introducing himself. He definitely wasn't there to sack their city or anything. You know, he'd been through some stuff recently, and he was now very much anti-sacking. And, uh, they, the guards didn't register his arrival at all. They must be one of those, like, the English ones that couldn't react to stuff. Aeneas and co. took some photos, making faces with the guards, before making their way into the city. As they walked, they noticed that the Carthaginians were all pretty rude, actually. They acted like Aeneas and his men didn't even exist. He tried asking for directions, but they all ignored him. Eventually, the visitors found their way to the palace, 
walked right past more guards, and found themselves before the queen. Hey, I know those guys, Aeneas yelled out, and it rang through the hall. Everyone stopped dead, staring at the stranger, with the fog dissipating behind him. Aeneas looked back. Oh, wait, had they been invisible? And then he looked back to see everyone staring directly at him. Up till now, he saw the queen, Dido, looking him up and down, herself standing above several supplicants, men that Aeneas recognized from the ships that he thought he lost. Uh, hi, he said. And that's how we got here, Aeneas said, reclining at the table. The Carthaginians had been listening with rapt attention, while the Trojans were just grateful to be eating something that wasn't hard tack and not be on the verge of death for the first time in a few years. So yeah, we'll hang out here for a little bit, but we'll be moving on, Aeneas assured them, and then turned to his men. Like, you can get your suitcases out, but don't unpack them into the dressers and hang stuff up, okay? Then, as the chatter began to pick up after Aeneas's story, he looked back to Dido, who had always been warm, but formal. Aeneas looked down to the ground. Hey, does someone want to get that baby? Why is there just a random baby crawling around at a feast? Aeneas said. Everyone looked to the space behind Dido, but saw nothing. Nervous laughter trickled in and out. Uh, what, what was he talking about? Aeneas said, the baby. There was a baby. Someone get him. Oh my gosh, he has an arrow. Why is there a loose baby crawling around with an arrow at a dinner party? Seriously, someone is making some questionable parenting decisions. Then he saw that the baby was strangely intentional. It was heading right for Queen Dido. Before Aeneas could say anything, the baby raised the arrow and sunk it into the queen's calf muscle. Aeneas winced and stammered when the queen didn't cry out in pain. In fact, she didn't seem to notice the arrow at all. She did, however, seem to notice Aeneas in a way she hadn't before. Her pupils dilated as she looked him over. And Aeneas looked down to the baby, who looked up and nodded. The reason Aeneas could see the kid was because the baby was Aeneas's half-brother, and Cupid, or Eros in the Greek, had just used one of his arrows to make Dido fall in love with Aeneas. That's where we're going to leave it this week. We will absolutely be back soon for more of the story, though, so don't worry. Next week, it's an Armenian fairy tale where a young man falls for a sorceress, and we'll detail a fun little weekend quarantine project involving shoving snakes in pitchers to build a makeshift magical rocket so you can smite your enemies. It's going to be fun. If you'd like to support the show, there's a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a unicorn head squirrel feeder, you can get bonus episodes and ad-free versions of the show that will also make you believe in a friendly neighborhood party horse while providing hours of entertainment this winter with a severed unicorn head that squirrels eat out of. Fun. But if you're more of a stickers, tees, and other fun merch kind of person, we also have a little shop. For this and info on the membership, see today's show notes or go to mythpodcast.com. 
The creature this week is the Kamazots, ruler of bats, from Mayan mythology, from the Quiche people. This deadly guy lives in Ziababa, the Mayan underworld, in the House of Baths, from which no one escapes alive. If you're looking to take advantage of low interest rates and purchase a home, let me just tell you, this is not a great neighborhood to live in safety-wise. In addition to the constantly deadly bat house, this street also hosts the House of Gloom, the House of Knives, the House of Cold, the House of Tigers, and the House of Fire. Throw in existential dread, creepy clowns, and spiders, and you have pretty much the complete starter set of nightmare fuel. Unlike the bats in my part of the world, who just hang around and helpfully eat mosquitoes, with only the occasional rabies scare, these underworld bats ruled over by Kemetzots are not messing around with any amount of do-goodery. Their snouts are knives, and the text says that simply to be in their presence is deadly. Their signature move is decapitation. The demigod hero twins of the Popova, who have to survive a night in each of the deadly nightmare houses, make it through the others with tricks and compromises. When they get to the house of bats, though, they peace out and spend the night huddled in the shafts of their blowguns. Whether the blowguns get bigger or the heroes get smaller, we don't know. But either way, our heroes would have been safe had they not fallen prey to a classic myths and legends trope. Like Orpheus bringing Eurydice out of the underworld and turning around too soon, one of our heroes gets impatient and peeks out of his blowgun to check if it's morning and slice. Kamazots lops his head off. Kamazots and his beheading bats show up in a couple of other places, decapitating wooden proto-people and delivering messages from the gods, but he's most remembered as the guy waiting on the other end of a blowgun, hoping you're going to stick your head out to see if it's morning. And if you're wondering, it isn't. It's just a knife-snouted bat king who's about to take your head off. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Today's Creature of the Week was written by Trisha Harris-Evanson. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music, our membership, merch, and more in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.